So the Bible reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, to chapter 2, verse 4. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I come, came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. This is the word of the Lord. I guess we all know the range of emotions that come when people change their plans Plans that involve us and that suddenly have changed what we were expecting to come. When I was a curate uh, many years ago uh, back in Cheadle, uh, I was once invited to uh, go and speak at the weekend away of the uh, Christian Union house party of one of the Manchester universities. I was thrilled, if somewhat daunted, to be asked. I got to work straight away. Uh, They'd invited me quite late. Uh, only uh, a couple of weeks before the weekend, and they wanted to study the prophet Amos. So I got myself digging into that great Old Testament book. Well, a few days after they booked me, I got another call. They didn't want me to come anymore. Uh, Why not, I asked, thinking that, well, perhaps they'd not managed to attract enough people uh, to come and uh, they couldn't make it work out financially. Well, this is what they said, and I do remember it quite clearly. Uh, You were quite low down on our list of preferred speakers. Someone higher up on that list became available, and we'd rather have them so we don't need you anymore. Now... Maybe you'll agree with their assessment. If you're new to our church this morning, you might never come back. That was their judgment of me. And I have to say, I didn't feel very joyful or very loved at the end of that second phone call. And as we turn back to Paul's second letter to the Christians in Corinth, neither do they, because he's cancelled his visit to them, and they're pretty upset about it. They seem to be characterizing uh, his change of plans in all sorts of negative ways. Maybe he thinks he prefers the Macedonian Christians to them. They must think they're a better sort of church compared to the ones in Corinth, and that's why he won't come. Uh, He's counted already back in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, the fear that uh, they will think he's made his plans in a worldly manner, that is, uh, to please himself, and not really considering the impact on them at all. And I don't know the motives of those students long ago who cancelled me, but Paul at several points in this letter, and particularly in the passage we're looking at this morning, does want the Corinthians to know his motives for changing his plans as he has. And as we shall see, it's as far away as conceivable from the idea that he's just found a 
group of people he'd rather be with and uh, bumped this lot unfeelingly off his list. In fact, he's changed their plans to visit them purely out of his love for them, even though he knows how much that will be misunderstood and how his change of plans will upset them in the short term. Just to echo from this, uh, something I said in the notices a couple of weeks ago, uh, people's actions uh, alone rarely or fully reveal their motives. Only the Lord sees what's really going on here in our hearts. And it's always good to assume the best when someone acts in a way that we find confusing or upsetting, even if we fear the worst, and even if we might be right. Sometimes we'll be pleasantly surprised, always we'll be led away from condemning others in our own thoughts. But I digress. Let's come back and see how Paul explains his motives and how this will apply to us. I'll outline where we're going, then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. You see, we may wonder how a passage like this could possibly apply to us. That was my thought on Monday this week uh, as I began to look at this. And I was thinking, thanks, John, for taking the three great passages before. What am I going to do with this change of travel plans? Well, I've become convinced uh, in the Lord that there is much here for us this morning, and I hope we shall discover that uh, together. And we'll find that particularly as we trace through uh, his thoughts under the watchwords of love, faith, and joy. For we too are called to love one another in Jesus Christ, and that is hard. And we have to love one another in a way which sometimes, precisely because it is loving, will be misunderstood and lead to our motives being questioned. And we're called to and enabled to stand firm in our faith in Christ and to live out that faith in a godly and countercultural and counterintuitive way. And we too are promised joy in Christ, a joy that in fullness, to be sure, will only come when we see him face to face, but joy that we can begin to know and to know increasingly as a fruit of the Spirit and a reality of our common life in Jesus Christ. And in fact, we shall see that these three themes, uh, love, faith, and joy, are circular. For Paul's exposition of his heart as a man in Christ enables us to see how these link together, that love guards faith in Christ, that faith generates joy in Christ, and that joy grows love in Christ. And we're back to the beginning of the circle. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to see that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word uh, to us this morning. And we pray now for your help uh, as we read this uh, ancient letter, trusting that it comes to us through the centuries, authored by the Holy Spirit the word of the living Lord Jesus, for us, your people here today. And so would you please draw us, Lord Jesus, into your love, into faith in you, into joy in you together. As we ask for your Father's glory. Amen. So do have the, the passage that Deb's read open, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, lots of commentators are very rude about the chapter division. It really makes no sense. This passage holds together across the chapter boundary. So those three headings, if you're making notes, or there are notes, actually. Uh, there are sheets if you want one. Um, I'll carry on, but if you put your hand up quietly, then one of the welcomers will bring you around a sheet if you want to make notes uh, on that. So these are our three headings. Love that guards faith in Christ, faith that generates joy in Christ, and joy that grows love in Christ. 
let's start then at the beginning. First, love that guards faith in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 23, our first verse, Paul says that he cancelled his plan to visit them in order to spare you. And he calls God as his witness, that that was truly his motive. We can never know someone else's motive, uh, can we? And when Paul calls on God as his witness, he says, I I, I can't uh, say this any more strongly to you. This really was what was in my heart. And you'll have to take it on trust that this is why I behaved the way I did. He couldn't make a more solemn declaration. And as he expounds uh, his heart in these verses, he tells us that his whole heart, his whole demeanor towards them is one of love. Look at the next verse. He's not their Lord, but rather a fellow worker with the sole goal of seeing them know and grow the joy of knowing Jesus by faith. That's why That's why, chapter 2, verse 1, he decided to cancel his next visit to them because he knew that if he came then, it would be a painful one. In the language of chapter 2, verse 2, it would bring grief. And of verse 3, it would bring distress. And then again, verse 4, our last verse, uh, is the explicit claim. He had written, rather than visited, written a letter in distress, anguish, and tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He really wants them to know how much he loves them in Christ. They think he's cancelled his visit from worldly, uncaring motives. He assures them that he has acted from love. Let's pause here for a moment of wider application beyond this passage. It's striking here because, because he loves them, he has broken his promise to them. It's extraordinary, isn't it? John Stott comments on this verse. Uh, If love requires us to change our plans and break our promises, then we must be ready to do so. I didn't feel quite brave enough to make that point on my own, which is why I found a John Stott quote uh, to uh, back me up on this. But that's what Paul does. Because I love you, I've changed my plans. I've broken the promise I made to come and visit you soon. What can we learn from that? Well, we have to be careful uh, here, very careful. We live in an age that is all too ready to break promises. This must be the exception and never the rule. And the only motivation must be one of love. Not love for ourselves, but love for the other. So please don't in any way hear me saying something uh, which might be taken as an endorsement to choose something from the news this week of the attitude uh, revealed by the singer Adele in the interview she gave uh, to the BBC a couple of days ago. Uh, She explained that her new album has been written to explain her recent divorce to her nine-year-old son. Uh, The singer said, I'm going to quote her, I find it breathtakingly revealing that we live in a culture in which uh, she can be so honest And yet without any sense of shame, but rather with an expectation that us, her adoring public, will both understand and sympathize. These are her words. I wanted to explain to him through this record, when he's in his 20s or 30s, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. The reason I left was the pursuit of my own happiness, even though it made Angelo, her son, really unhappy. Isn't that extraordinary that someone could stand up and say that in self-justification and expecting our sympathy? So just to be crystal clear, love for ourselves, 
the pursuit of our own happiness as a justification for breaking our promises and thereby hurting others is anathema to God, utterly condemned by him. It is entirely the opposite of the love that God himself shows to us, the self-giving, other-centered love that is at the heart of the Christian gospel in the cross of the Lord Jesus, that love which Paul is now imitating and learning from as he breaks his promise to them out of love for them and even at great cost to himself. He knows they will malign him and misunderstand him, but because he loves them, he does it anyway. So yes, there are times when the plans we have made are simply no longer consistent with loving God and loving people. And the danger for us then, especially us at conservative religious types who take promises very seriously, the danger for us is that pride will mean we won't back down. Arrogance will mean we won't think again. We may think it's faithless to change a plan that we've made in all honesty and seriousness. We've all been learning something of that lesson, haven't we, over the last 18 months. There's a real irony and a lesson from the Lord to me. About seven or eight years ago, I named our vision group the 2021 group, because 2021 is the first of the 200th anniversaries of St. John's Church, and we were going to fill this year with great mission and activity as we celebrated that centenary, bicentenary here. All those plans laid waste. What foolish it would be in our current state and climate uh, just to say, well, we made a plan and we're going to do it. We've been planning it for seven years. Not the right thing at all. It would no longer be the loving thing for us to do in our current weakened state. No longer be the right opportunity to press ahead with that which we'd formerly planned. Perhaps there's no better illustration of the kind of stubborn promise-keeping that is the very opposite of love than the biblical story of Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. Read it later if you've time. Uh, Jephthah had been uh, set apart by the Lord to deliver the Israelites from the uh, oppressive hand of the Ammonites. And this is what we read, Judges 11 verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Already when you read that part of the story, you're feeling a little bit nervous because of the breadth of the promise. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns and Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines. Well, at that point, if you're reading that text for the first time, you have this terrible sense of foreboding. Surely he won't do it. What a wicked, foolish promise he made. But he does. He executes his daughter because he made a promise to do so. Even though in the whole of biblical religion, the Lord never demands human sacrifice. It is only the pagan religions that demand the sacrifice of our children, all of which makes it even more in stark relief, the extraordinary grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, where the man who is God himself comes and offers himself voluntarily for us so that we might live his life, the ransom payment, so that our sins can be forgiven. 
His, the death, that means that when we symbolically wash Trixabel in water, we're acting out the implication, the application of what Christ did on the cross, washing us clean, that as we trust in him, we might find ourselves at peace with God. But not Jephthah's daughter. She was never part of that. There are, from time to time, commitments, plans, and promises that need to be broken out of love for God and for others. But we've not yet come to the heart of why Paul in love changes his plan. So let's draw back from that wider application to see why he does what he does. What is it, chapter 2, verse 4, that he wrote out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, such that that letter must arrive and do its work before he will put back in the diary his own next personal visit to them? And the answer to that is we we don't know the fine detail. The severe letter has not been preserved uh, for us. We know several letters that Paul wrote that haven't been preserved uh, in the uh, purposes of God and to the New Testament, and this is one of them. Uh, We do know, and Paul says more about this in the next uh, section, so we'll come back to it next week, that it related to the behavior of one or more of the Corinthian Christians. There was... Within that congregation, those who were proudly, publicly, boldly going about with sin from which they refused to repent. There was open disobedience to the word of God amongst some in the church in Corinth. And because Paul is no preacher of cheap grace, he knows that if he comes and that is the case, then the confrontation that will result, not between Paul and the Corinthians, but between the word of God... And those who refuse to repent will possibly end the relationship he has with that congregation forever. And so he writes the letter uh, in order uh, that the word of God might bring forth fresh repentance and renewed humility uh, before the gospel. So that when he comes, there might once again be the unity of those who are humbled together beneath the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. When Paul explained to the elders in the church of Ephesus what he did for what was his calling, he said this, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, that is to all humanity, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. The gospel message is always turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And because we love our sins and because we live in a culture that uh, praises us when we indulge ourselves and join with them in their self-indulgence, we don't mind talk of faith. Everybody needs a little faith, something to help them get through. But this language of repentance, that cuts us to the heart. That separates us from our neighbors and their way of looking at the world and marks us out as living differently. It's costly, it's hard, and so there have always been those who will preach faith without repentance and that's what's happening in Corinth some have arisen who say we love Jesus we trust in him it's wonderful following Jesus but let's carry on going to the idol temple let's keep on sleeping with people who we're not married to let's keep on making as much money as we can just for our own sake God wants me to be happy that must mean God wants me to be rich and have a Lamborghini it's that sort of thinking Uh, the veneer of faith that shows not a whit of evidence of a life consecrated and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, when the gospel meets that, there is conflict. 
And it's that conflict that Paul sends this severe letter to deal with, calling for this fresh repentance so that when he comes, there might once again be a united joy in the true gospel. Paul loves them too much to allow them to continue to be seduced by fine and pious words that will not save them. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. However much we use the name of Jesus, there's only the pathway to hell. So hear this, friends. That's why uh, when our godparents come to make their uh, promises in the baptism service, uh, they will be asked, do you turn and submit and come to Christ? In other words, questions of faith. But they'll also be asked, do you reject the devil? Do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil? Do you repent of sin? There must be both repentance and faith, as you will shortly articulate when we come to baptize Trixabel. Faith itself, without repentance, will not save. So his love for them means no visit yet, but rather a letter to correct and rebuke them in the hope that they will together return to the faith. He loves them so much that he knows the one thing that matters is their good standing in Christ. And so he calls them to that repentance. They know that's hard for them to hear. Friends, is it any easier for us to hear a call to repentance? I don't find it easy. I don't think you do either. And as Paul will put it later in this letter, as he reflects on the impact of this severe letter, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. You became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There is a love. This is a love which will do anything to guard authentic faith. That is faith accompanied by repentance in Christ. We lift that out in our own congregation when we see someone straying. We love them enough to actually take them aside and confront them, rebuke them, correct them with whatever that is. Will you do it with me if you see me straying in some way? I hope you'll love me enough to do that. I hope I'll love you enough to do it when I see it. Will we do it with our own children as we bring them up in the fear and nurture of the Lord to say, now that is just wrong, that dishonors Christ. Even if we know their reaction will be to say, well, that's just a killjoy thing. I'm not interested in your Christianity if that's what it means. We love them enough to be honest with them. We love our own national church enough to take our stand in these troubled days on these issues. We must move on. Time is escaping me. To second, faith that generates joy in Christ. Here I just want to focus on verse 24, the last verse of chapter one, it should be written above the door of every ministerial training institution. It should be written in the heart of anyone, of any of us who serves or speaks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's ministry motto. One of them. There are more than one, but this is a good one, and it's in our passage today. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by your faith, it is by faith that you stand firm. 
Friends, if there's one thing you take away from here today, uh, it would be that I'd urge you to savor these words, reflect on them and pray them through uh, in your own response, your own service uh, to Jesus Christ. As Paul says uh, here that of his own relationship with these Christians, he's not their Lord. We never stand over other believers, but only and always alongside. That's because we already have a Lord and we don't need a lover. We have Jesus Christ. He is our only master. Ministers are not masters. You never need to obey me, except insofar as I teach you God's ways and exhort us to unite around walking in truth and living in love. All of us stand together on one level, united in faith. Hierarchies exist, don't they? They have a certain usefulness in organizations, even the Church of England. But let us never be seduced into thinking that they speak to us of a spiritual reality. An archbishop is no nearer to heaven than any of you if he will but come by faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. We are all children of the one Father. We all look to the one Savior. We're all filled by the one Spirit. Now, how could Paul, even the Apostle of Christ, lord it over when his whole message is, there is a Lord, and it's not me, it's Jesus. We only ever get alongside our fellow Christians, never above them, never superior to them. And when there is that superiority that creeps into our hearts, well, then whack it with a big stick and renew your own humility before the Lord. Remember the sins from which you've been forgiven and delivered before you presume to speak to another as you see that speck in their eye. Oh, that's the character of the heart, one that is humbled alongside, uh, united with all Christian people. Now the purpose statement, work with you for your joy. Isn't that wonderful? That's the purpose of Christian ministry, uh, to work together It's not that I have something to give you, but that we work together for this purpose of discovering, uh, of seeking, finding, and sharing satisfaction in Jesus and him alone so that our hearts overflow with joy. That's wonderful. The end goal uh, is not that we might become church members, though that's a good thing. Uh, It's not that we might grow in obedience to the Ten Commandments, though that's a very good thing. It's not even that we might just grow in knowledge of the Scriptures, though that's a supremely good thing. Now, the end goal is that together we would be satisfied in who Jesus is for us and in us and among us and ahead of us. On that day when we shall know joy in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel is good news because it creates ultimately a joyful society of those who are so knit together in Jesus Christ. His perfections we rejoice in. uh, The limitless nature of his forgiveness we depend upon. The beauty of his holiness entrances us character of his self-giving, self-denying love so uh, inspires us with his Spirit's help to live like that, that we are a community of people who are rejoicing together in our faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like the kind of society you want to belong to? How much work then the Lord has to do here among us so that the first thing people would say when they come to St. John's Hartford is, well, I was a bit mystified by what the fellow said from the pulpit, but boy, those people are happy. 
They seem to really love each other and to be so satisfied and confident of the love that they know from their God whom they worship. What a wonderful testimony that would be. That's Paul's goal, to so work uh, with the believers that joy is the fruit. Uh, Now, what is the solid foundation uh, of that joy? Uh, Well, it is this faith by which we stand firm in the last clause of that verse. Do you remember the story Jesus told of the two men, uh, one who built his house on the rock, the other who built his house on the sand? Well, the rains came down, the seas rose, the storms battered against those houses. But the man who had built his house on the rock, the man who had put his trust his whole life into the hands and the promises and the purposes of Jesus Christ, he stood firm. Storms will come uh, and batter us in life, whether because we're Christians or just because life in a fallen world is hard and often miserable. But when we stand in Christ on this foundation, then nothing will rob us of our joy in him. Nothing will rob us of the joy we share together in him as his people here. So not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. Friends, this is a great verse to learn, to embed in your heart and your mind and to pray for yourself and for any who exercised ministry in Jesus' name, that this would be true of us as well. Or thirdly and finally, and I will be brief, there's a joy that grows love in Christ. Remember, Paul knows that if he visits now, there will be little mutual joy because they'll just be falling out. They have some repenting to do first, or at least some of them do. Indeed, if he comes now, chapter 2, verse 2, they will grieve him. They will not rejoice together. There can be no shared joy between a humble Christian and an unrepentant one. So we've seen already, Paul loves them enough to, to guard their faith, to call them to repentance. He knows that their renewed, humbled faith will generate joy. And once God's word has done its work, and they are freshly united humbled at the foot of the cross of Christ, then the joy each believer has, apostle and Corinthian in Christ, that every one of us may have as members together of St. John's Church Hartford, will once more flow back and forth between them in the bonds of Christian love. Paul's joy in Jesus uh, will uh, infect them and they will gain it. Their renewed joy in him will encourage him And rather than it being a a spiral of decline, as we so often see with negative behaviors, this is a spiral of life. As joy breeds joy, uh, as together uh, they fix their eyes on Jesus. And he's confident this will happen because the gospel is true and the gospel works and the gospel is powerful. I had confidence in all of you, verse 3, that you would share my joy. Indeed, this letter is a testimony that the word of that severe letter has done its work and joy is once again renewed between them. Friends, it's as we uh, rejoice uh, together uh, in Jesus that we grow in love for one another. As that which we have in common, namely him, uh, fills more and more of our lives. So we are held together ever more closely as one family uh, in him. Not to become a, a strange society of people who only ever have church services and sing songs rather than a love which begins to flow out to enemy, to neighbor, 
beyond the bounds even of this family and the brothers and sisters who we call our own. Friends, this is the glorious cycle of the gospel, uh, that love leads us to guard faith, that faith brings joy and that joy grows love, that, that brings the cycle back right to where it started. Nothing here for us in a few travel plans that have changed. No, there's everything we need to hear God's word today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I want to pray for any who are with us this morning who aren't yet believers. And as they look to the Lord Jesus, his death for them, his love for them, his hands held out wide on the cross, so they would build on the foundation that is faith in Christ, that will stand against the storms that come. And Father, for those of us who are believers, please, Lord, would you give us such love for you and for others that we will cherish above all your gospel and your word, that we will not rest until we honor it and those with whom we worship likewise. But Father, as that faith in you is renewed and humbled and deepened and sharpened, so we pray that it would issue an ever-increasing joy, a joy that is our strength, when the storms of life come against us. And as we rejoice in you, so would you hold us together, grow us ever deeper in love, that we might speak to a dying and loveless world of the life and hope we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.